This episode is brought to you by HBO. The finalists for the 2020 HBO APA Visionary Short Film Competition have been announced. HBO Visionaries will be celebrating its fourth class of emerging Asian and Pacific Islander American filmmakers on Friday, September 25th during the virtual Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. Tune in at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Friday, September 25th via www.hbovisionaries.com. You can meet this year's visionaries, watch the films, and see familiar faces. Find out more information about the program and official rules on the website, and keep an eye out for the opening of submissions for the 2021 competition and the opportunity to have your short film considered for HBO and HBO Max. Again, that's www.hbovisionaries.com. All three Visionary 2020 shorts will also be available to stream on HBO Max on Tuesday, September 29th. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our seventh season, and this semester we're talking about Asian American interracial cinema. It's a topic that we thought would be pretty relevant for these times as we're thinking a lot about solidarity and anti-racism and what we as Asian Americans can learn from our histories. Yeah, and what role Asian American cinema can play in telling interracial stories and proposing possibilities for solidarity. And not all of these movies do that perfectly. Um, even very good ones. There are things we can learn from it in terms of how, how to be good allies and sometimes ways in which we can fall into traps that are less productive. Those of you who listened to our first episode of this season know that we started with Mississippi Triangle. Today we're looking at two films. The first one is directed and produced by Daisil Kim Gibson, Elaine Kim, and Christine Choi, who also directed Mississippi Triangle. Yeah. And it's Saigu which means April 29th, and it's a documentary from 1993 following three Korean-American women shortly after the L.A. uprising following the Rodney King verdict. And incredibly, this was shot only three months later. I know. So it's somewhere between a documentary looking back, but it's almost still, they're still like in the air of what happened that April. And people are still not quite over the emotions of what they went through. And I mean, like, as we'll discover with the second film. In the second film, Wet Sands, Daisel Kim Gibson revisits these women in 10 years and expands on the story. Even 10 years later, they're still living in those emotions. But yeah, three months. It's quite a, like, what makes this so incredible is like, how do you even ask questions of people who lost their livelihoods just three months later? It's kind of crazy to think about because it's about three months since the George Floyd protests started across the country. Yeah. So I was watching it thinking there's somebody now making that documentary, (laughs) you know, like based on what happened this year. It's so new. Yeah. In 1992, it's not like there was social media through which to further a certain kind of conversation. Perhaps they're still stuck, not stuck, but like 
you haven't had the opportunity to work through a lot of your emotions quite the same way as we can now. 200,000 Koreans live in LA County. They suffered about half of the estimated $800 million in losses. We present Korean women who are caught in the LA crisis. Their lives have been altered forever. These are their stories, some facts, some feelings. They speak only for themselves. One of them is significantly the mother of Edward Song Lee, who was an 18-year-old who was killed on April 30th. What happened was a Korean shopkeeper mistook him for a looter and shot him. And the film mentions that out of the people who died during the uprising, one was Korean-American and it was Edward. There's two other Korean women. One of them owns a liquor store and another one owns a family market. So they kind of talk a lot about their experience of the L.A. uprising, also known as the L.A. riots, when they started hearing that Korean stores were becoming targets for this anger over the acquittal of the LAPD officers and that black and at some point Latino people were coming and stealing a lot of stuff. They're setting stuff on fire and the LAPD was not doing anything to help them. There were certain places the police officers protected, like Beverly Hills, and Koreatown was left to their own devices. I mean, left to burn, literally burn. Yeah. One person says that there were helicopters in the air, and they would wave at the helicopters to try to get them to come save them, and the helicopters would do nothing. And then meanwhile, the other kind of institutional problem that's identified here is that the media chose to make the rebellion a black versus Korean issue. And that they would constantly show images of Koreans wielding guns as if they're the ones who have the problem with the black community. And also very importantly, and I think kind of controversially within the context of this film, there was the killing of Latasha Harlins, who was a young black woman who was shot by a Korean liquor store owner. And this was very well known at the time. And the media would constantly show images of that murder. In fact, they say that the two images shown most during this period were the Rodney King beating, and the second was the Latasha Harlan's murder, as if to perpetuate the sense that this was as much a Korean versus Black issue as it was a white versus Black issue. So that's sort of the starting point of this film. And the film works through this weird place that Koreans have between white and Black within the context of race in Los Angeles, but then also within the context of these very difficult few days in 1992. So I, I I loved this film. When I first watched it, I thought it was a powerful indictment of how white supremacy works and the way that the white establishment pits Korean versus Blacks against each other. And if they fight each other, then they both burn and power gets to be maintained with the status quo. The power stands back and watches. Exactly. It protects itself and then watches everybody else burn. And the film is, again, like a powerful indictment of this. And it still remains that. The film is trying to say to audiences, including Black audiences, like, don't be mad at the Koreans. Be mad at white society because they're the ones who didn't provide social welfare for us. They're the ones that killed Rodney King. They're the ones that are protecting Beverly Hills over Koreatown. They're the ones who are saying, hey, just check your insurance company. Let the insurance company take care of it. We don't need to take care of you. And the film is making a case that Koreans are struggling just like any other minority that's trying to make it in this world. 
and that really the Koreans are, someone in the film says they're the sacrificial lamb and that this sort of narrative of black versus Korean should never have been. It was perpetuated by the media and for better or worse, Koreans bought into it and so did the black community. But the other side of it is it doesn't shy away from these anti-black ideas that some of these Korean-American immigrants might have picked up along the way. Some customers tells me that Korean people are brainwashed by white people and you are educated by white people while you were in Korea already. Customers are kings. You make money through us, but you treat the black people very rude. And you looked us very down. You did not treat us as a human being. Yeah, some of the um, Korean store owners have talked about how they had to learn. Like, if you have a black customer, like, put the money in their hands. Don't just lay it on the counter and not look them in the eye. Like, treat your customer like your neighbors, like you live in the same community. We see examples of some Korean shop owners that learn that and they talk about how important that is. Like one guy dresses up as Santa Claus and poses for photos with kids from the neighborhood. And they also acknowledge that Koreans like, don't always do enough. And perhaps that's what led to some of the, the discord. And at the same time, you also sort of see one shopkeeper who talks about how she had two Black employees that were there when violence broke out and she was going to come, but they told her to stay back. You know, <laughs> like, don't come, it's too dangerous, we'll protect the store for you. So there's kind of stories like that, too. I lived in L.A. in 1992. I remember the Black smoke from our house. And I never thought about it from the Korean perspective. And this is a film that really fights the, the legitimacy of that story and that perspective. I mean, it's called Saigu. Like, like from the very beginning, it says, we're going to use Korean to talk about our side of things and specifically to center a Korean woman and to use the Korean language. Um, I mean, in 1993, like a lot of documentaries on public TV were still dubbing non-English languages. This is a film that has subtitles. It wants us to hear these voices. And that's powerful. Wait, wait, wait. Tell us more about how you lived in L.A. at that time and saw smoke. Really? Yeah. I don't think you've ever told me about this. I mean, I guess I knew you lived in Cerritos, right? Yeah, I mean, Cerritos is pretty multiracial. I mean, it's 40% white, 40% Asian, probably. <laughs> but we're not too far from Compton. Like, I did my jury duty in Compton. That's how close it is geographically. Um, so I remember seeing the black smoke. We would watch TV. And I don't, I think I was too young to really pick up on the racial element. Like to me, this was just something bad is happening out there and people are looting. Like that's really all I picked up on it. I mean, you know, we understood that Rodney King as a black man was beat and that the black community is involved with a lot of the looting. I had no idea how Asian people fit into any of this. But the distinct memory I have from this period is, so my mom, it was me, my mom, my sister at home. And... I can't imagine what was going on in my mom's head, especially if she's watching TV and seeing this being a black versus Korean issue. She took me and my sister to a relative's house and we all sort of bunkered up at this other person's house. And I remember going to school after the riots and my mom told me, watch out for black people. That's cool. Wow. Like, I'll never forget this. And I had no conception of it being like a Asian versus black thing, but I remember that moment. And I mean, that's... That's, that's like ingrained anti-blackness right there. Um, and that's exactly what we need to talk about, obviously. I think when my mom said it, it felt very innocent to me. Like, oh, she don't... To me, it was the same as her telling me to put on a jacket when I go out. But it speaks to both how naturalized this kind of perspective is 
that it didn't shock me more. Yeah. So in, in wanting to examine anti-blackness, I'm thinking about Sayugu as a gesture towards that, and at least of noting that Korean people did kind of buy into some of this narrative that it was Korean versus black and felt like they had to pick up guns <laughs> to protect themselves from black and brown people. And so I don't know, like I'm watching this film now in 2020, three months after the George Floyd protests. I feel like this film doesn't go nearly far enough. Yeah, it acknowledges the work that Korean people needed to do. But this is a film that I don't think that the film even mentions Latasha Harlins by name the black woman who was killed by a Korean person. And I don't think they interview a single black person. in this. And I think it's because they want to center a Korean woman, which is again, like in 1993, that is revolutionary. But watching it now, that remains a huge hole here. So the film is really good at calling out white supremacy. And I would say less good at calling out Korean anti-blackness. And I wonder to what extent this film is really trying to center Koreanness and Korean identity and Korean politics as somewhat separate from the call to protecting the lives of Black people. Like, it doesn't talk about the fact, for instance, that Edward Lee was killed. He's this 18-year-old Korean man who was killed by another Korean person. But that Korean person was out to kill a Black person. Oh, yeah. That's not talked about here. Yeah. It just turns Edward Lee into a victim of circumstance, a victim of white supremacy. But he's also a victim of anti-Blackness within the Korean community. Yeah. But again, like, we don't expect films to be perfect. This film is only, like, 30-something minutes. And it goes back to what you are saying. It was made three months after it happened. So I think the fascinating part of it is just watching the rawness of all the emotion. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, there's not enough time to really think about context at that point. Yeah. I mean, there is, it's not that there isn't, but there's only so much time, right? Yeah, the film knew what it wanted to do, and it was pretty good at that. Like you were telling me before we started recording, like that most powerful scene in the film when they talk about the black shirt. Yeah, that was like, there's a moment in the film where the mother of Edward, you hear her talk about how it's her daughter who's the one who tells her, I think the person who got killed might be my brother. And she looks at the Korea Times and there's a photo of the Korean man that got killed, like just like a picture of a dead body. And that's how they have to figure out whether it's their son. Mm -hmm. There's this scene in the film where she's talking about how like she looks at the picture, it's black and white. She sees the shirt, the shirt is black. And she's like, maybe it's not my son. Like it kind of looks like my son. But I remember he when he left, he was wearing a white shirt. And then it's not until later that she sees the same photo in the LA Times and it's in color and she realizes that it's not a black shirt, it's a white shirt soaked in blood. That's what this movie does so well. Capture moments like that that are tragedies and like no matter how we prioritize the issues that we want to talk about, this film makes undeniable that this was a tragedy for the Korean community, especially like Korean immigrants. Yeah, and they're also pretty good about reminding people, like, this is just one person who died. And there's 50-something more stories like this. Yeah. So that brings us to Wet Sand, the film that she made 10 years later, sort of revisiting a lot of these stories 10 years later. And here she does kind of the opposite. I think she heard a lot of criticism of Zaigu. And in fact, in the version of this film that we saw on YouTube, it was posted on YouTube by the Korean American Film Festival of New York. 
you actually get an interview with the director where she says, yeah, like a lot of Korean people were not happy with this film because if anything, it said too much about their own anti-blackness. But she also acknowledges, but there's also a very legitimate argument that this film does not give voice to all the other victims who are not Korean. And so with Wet Sand, she basically just goes completely on the other direction, which is let's get every perspective here, as many perspectives as possible. She talks to Black residents, Latino residents, Korean. She talks to some, some white people, too, who say some questionable things. She shows that even within these communities, there are different perspectives on what happened and what's happened in the last 10 years. The big statistic the first film had about the Korean businesses was that only 28% of them survived. In the second film, she's able to remind people that, like, it wasn't just the Koreans. But I mean, I think I, I get it. it. I can kind of see how in the context of 1993, right, when you feel like nobody is talking about the Korean-American perspective, I can see how it makes sense to be like, we're going to talk about it because if we don't do it, nobody else will. Right. Exactly. We need to carve out some space for that to happen. Yeah. And I think it makes sense that 10 years later... There is that perspective. You can pull back. It's really satisfying to see Korean folks, Black folks, Latino folks talking together, saying things that are in support of each other, or at least in understanding what the other group went through, and also collectively denouncing white supremacy. Like, that's very satisfying, especially for to hear like Korean women get to be part of that chorus of indicting power. And they also have, like, at least one white man denouncing white supremacy as well. There is, yeah. In addition to more white people not doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really trying to be more of a cross-section of different voices. And also talking about how, you know, in the decade after, you have more and more people from Mexico moving to the LA region and how that's kind of reshaped the dynamics and there's a great interviews, like where she interviews like, Latino employees who work for Korean employers at Korean grocery stores. And they talk about, yeah, the Korean employers don't treat us as well as they treat Korean employees. And just stuff like that, like this air it out. Like this is really great. And it talks about what we've learned since 1992, but also things that we have yet to learn and we're still trying to work out. This film gets into a lot of great nitty gritty about things like policy and bureaucracy. They interview people who are business owners who are trying to apply for loans, talking to them about how, as a Black business owner, there's redlining that still exists. Like, they can't get loans as readily as white people can. I mean, they don't compare that experience with a Korean person, but we do see Korean people being able to bounce back. So kind of in the way that Mississippi Triangle did that yeah, in the beginning, maybe the Asian folks and the Black folks were in the same boat, but maybe there's more opportunity for Asian folks to recover, whereas the system is designed to keep Black people from owning property and, and owning capital. I mean, there's a really powerful moment at the end of the film when yeah, there's a Korean woman who admits that, you know, when she came to America, she didn't realize that she would basically have to understand other people and how other people suffer as well. And it's like a really nice acknowledgement that Becoming American doesn't just mean learning English or watching The Simpsons or something, but becoming Americanized means learning how race works in America and learning like what is your responsibility in anti-racism. And I think that that's a really powerful acknowledgement. I'm glad that the film kind of ends there. At the same time, the film ends with this acknowledgement that nothing has been fixed. It keeps talking about a powder keg. Like this is waiting to explode again. And you know what? That has come true over and over again in the United States. Y eso es una bomba que va a explotar. Saigu is very contained. It's very focused. 
Let's say, if anything, in realizing it has to tell a lot bigger story, it's kind of too much. I feel like this film is less successful. At the same time, it might be more essential. And as a result, I think I would invite audiences, or at least our audiences, to watch both films. They're sort of incomplete one without the other. And they're both on YouTube, <laughs> thanks to the Korean American Film Festival of New York. They did a, I don't know if it was a retrospective or a tribute to Daso Kim Gibson a few years ago, and then they were able to post both films online. And these films deserve to be revisited, especially in 2020. Yeah, it was really fascinating to watch the protests, specifically Korean American protests, where they all came out with signs like, we want peace. There was like a banner that said our life effort is gone and sort of coming together to try to counteract the mainstream media narrative at the moment, which was that it was a black versus Korean issue. For me, it was really crazy to watch as somebody who covered some of the protests this year in June. One of the protests that I covered was in Garden Grove, home of OC's Koreatown. And the history of migration of Korean Americans to Orange County is directly related to these events, the LA uprising, because a lot of the business owners who had their stores burned down and weren't able to continue, they ended up going to Orange County. So that was actually really crazy. And I don't think I was thinking about it at that time, because honestly, now we know the Orange County protests ended up being fairly peaceful. But at the time, I think we just didn't know what was going on. We were you know, you see all these scenes of much more violent protests around the nation and, you know, even reporters getting shot with rubber bullets. And I think I was just like, okay, I guess I'm going to cover this protest. I hope it's not violent. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when I was there, I ended up seeing somebody holding a sign that said, Korean Americans for Black Lives. And of course, I stopped and talked with her, <laughs> right? And it was interesting because we were walking already. We were already kind of following the march. And I was talking to her about why she came. And she reminded me that um, we were walking pretty close to the Korean businesses in Garden Grove. And um, we didn't actually pass it. I wonder if the organizers were aware of this and purposely made the route so it didn't go near the Korean businesses. I'm not really sure if they knew or not. We were heading in that direction, and she thought we were going to pass it, but then we made sort of like a sharp right turn, so we didn't actually pass it. I remember just sort of like feeling this, like, the weight of that, you know, like, oh, that's that's crazy, right? <laughs> like, how do those, how does that community feel about this? It must bring back memories, right? But at the same time, it was interesting to see the other side of it, like people like her who had come out specifically because of that. You know what I mean? They came out to the protest because they wanted to show that Korean Americans were behind this. And it wasn't just her. There was another group that was holding signs that said Asian American pastors for Black Lives. So after talking to her, I ended up talking to a Korean American pastor and he came out with a bunch of people from his church for the exact same reason. His father owned a hamburger shop during the riots. And he was telling me about how he was really proud to say that um, his father had a good relationship with the Latino and Black neighbors. So they helped him protect his store. So it didn't get burned down. But at the same time, it didn't survive financially. So that's a kind of a reminder, too, like... Even if it didn't burn down, that doesn't mean that the business survived. It was sort of like interesting to see the Korean American community in 2020 
really understanding what happened back in like 1992 and not wanting to repeat that and coming out for the Black Lives Matters protests specifically because they wanted the narrative to be different this time. And I think it's thanks to films like Sayugu that allowed Korean Americans to see themselves within the story and to think about their place in what happened. And even if it doesn't answer everything, because it's only 30-something minutes, it sparked a conversation. This is a film that's frequently taught in Asian American studies classes, and how calls for thinking about this beyond black and white have reverberated, and as a result, have allowed Korean Americans for Black Lives to be a thing in 2020, and how important that is at this moment. Yeah. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is WakeUpSatSchool. Class dismissed. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation. The good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.